This is Andy. And this is Matt. And you're listening to The Hop Podcast with No Name. What a dumb name. It's so stupid. <laughs> stupid. And we're off. I'm bringing it back. <laughs> I didn't even know how to start it. That's how we're doing it. Here we are. And can I say that now though? Just here we are. No, it's okay. one or the other. You can go maybe next episode you can start and oh, then okay. I'll listen. All right. Um, so before we got started, yes, I sarcastically said to you, what's the color of the day? <laughs> and I very seriously like, no, answered you. Ask, <laughs> ask me that on the podcast. So yeah, Andrea, <laughs> what is the color of the day? Well, the color of this episode is orange. You're going to make some <laughs> orange you glad joke. I'm going to nope. be so upset. No, 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 no. It's orange because uh, the question that we're going to answer is one that makes people viscerally angry, which I'm going to associate with red. And then we are going to put a little bit of, um, of, of happiness around it, a, a bit of peace, if you will, to it. So that I'm picturing mixing in just a bit of yellow to represent some happiness. And here we are with some orange. <laughs> that's, that's it. <laughs> This is, wow, how lucky am I? <laughs> what a good start to the day. Uh, it's like, I feel... Aren't you glad I oh, made you ask? I knew, <laughs> knew it was coming. Today, your eldest daughter asked me, she wanted to ask me, or tell me a joke. Yes. And she said, how do you get a tissue to dance? Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, I know the answer because I've heard the joke before. And she's like, no, ask me how. <laughs> she's like, it, it doesn't matter. And then I was okay, yeah, I'll play along. For now, when she's when she's four, that's <laughs> that's done, it's over. That's enough. So you said we have a topic that makes people angry. Yes, yeah. Because so we're gonna continue on with talking about some of the the questions that leadership tend to have in this space, and uh, the pushback that we hear, and see if we can help people be able to wrap some words around maybe how to answer it, or at least maybe what to ask permission to go do in, in light of that pushback. And this one is one that we just heard last week and we've heard many, many times before. And it is the question about how am I supposed to use these hop concepts or how are we supposed to be using them after an event when we have regulatory requirements specific to how we respond to an event? Which, which this yeah. is, for me, yes, was uber specific to industry and OSHA. Right. I'd obviously every company has some sort of OSHA guidelines, little posters on the wall, tells you all your regulations. But we didn't have those conversations with OSHA at all in any of the jobs I'd had before. Uh, and I think it was one of our first trainings together in person. I don't remember where we were, but I had engaged in a topic, and someone had asked me. They were asking me a question like, yeah, but what about OSHA regulations? And I said, great question, Andrea. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, go. You're like, I have no idea. And also because we're dealing with folks around the globe, right? It's not even OSHA. There's a bunch of regulatory bodies that people are interacting with and a lot of different requirements, some of which are very similar from country to country and some of which are very different from country to country. And so it is a good question. And it's a question that I think is, is good for a leadership team to be uncomfortable with because they are subject to these regulatory requirements 
And so you should absolutely know the answer to that question if you're going to head into this space. Yeah. And we're lucky enough to be able to speak to some of the people on the regulatory side. Yes. And hear from them as well. So yes. this is definitely a topic that comes up often. Yes. Often. And so, yeah. I mean, that is point one that you just brought up in case folks that are listening are not aware that regulatory agencies around the world are moving in this direction. Um, and so whereas 10 years ago, that wasn't true at all. And this was a harder question to answer. <laughs> at least now we know that there are there are advocates within regulatory bodies that are attempting to make this change including the acting head of OSHA, who's one of the biggest hop advocates in the world. We've got folks in the Canadian space that are have been moving in this direction, have been advocates for many years on it. You know, New Zealand, Australia, there's lots of different locations that are starting to move in this direction. But usually regulatory agencies are about 10 years behind changes that industry makes. So we still got a little bit, we got a little bit more time. Yeah, and we're not in the situation where dominoes are falling, right? Like it's not all of a sudden, okay, everything in this country is now 100% hop, but there's just enough sort of tension happening, right? Enough change and, and conversation and discussion yeah. about what this looks like and how it could impact those things. Yeah. All right. So if somebody is requesting how we manage both regulatory requirements and using this hop space, we already made the first point. They're moving in the same direction, but sitting in your seat from wherever folks are in industry, it probably doesn't feel like that. And so we sometimes do have to live in sort of two different worlds, meaning we still do have regulatory bodies that we have to answer to. And there are very specific requirements as to how you respond to events in some countries like it's the police come in, right? You have no control over the actual response at all. Um, and in other countries, there's just very specific questions that you have to know the answer to. So let's start off with, if there's just very specific questions, but you as the company actually have control over how you want to ask questions and how you want to run um, learning post-event. In those cases, what we found through practice and what I had to do in my own organization was we actually still did operational learning and learning teams. And we did that. And then after doing operational learning and learning teams, you look at the questions that are required for you to answer. And what you find is a significant number of them you can answer and you can answer directly. There are some exceptions, right? If you have a specific question about like how long somebody has had experience, you might not get that specific question answered in operational learning. Or if there was a very specific trigger as to how an event occurred that didn't come up in the broader conversation, you might have to go look at um, any sort of objective data to find that out. Like if you had, um, you know, had a piece of equipment fail and you have actually diagnostics of that piece of equipment, you might have to go look at that separately to answer some of the very specific questions. But I used to do um, something called an expanded event factors analysis, like You're just investigation. Off. <laughs> Look at all these big words. And if you haven't heard of that before, there's a there's an episode of Todd Conklin's podcast, Pre Accident Investigation, that goes over it. And the requirements of filling that out 
um, I could do a significant number. I'd, I'd throw a percentage of like 90% of what I needed I could get from operational learning. And then I would have to go ask very specific questions of people to fill in the rest of it. Um, and then that expanded event factors analysis was actually quite good at covering the regulatory requirements in Europe and in the U.S., which were the two places that I spent time using those. And you're making an important distinction between operational learning and then checking off the box. Mm. Because if you brought that sort of, I'm imagining you like keeping it in your pocket, it's a list of <laughs> questions you have to make sure you answer. Yes. And then uh, you're, if you're doing operational learning, you don't want to stop mid-operational learning and say, okay, uh, that's really interesting how you do that. Um, look down at your notes. Uh, so when did you start? <laughs> when did you start working here? When was the last time you were trained? That's not at all what should happen. Yes. And it's probably actually important for us to remind people and differentiate between what operational learning is and what an investigation is. Because operational learning, you're trying to understand the health of the system, right? The brittleness, the, the places where things could not go to plan and actually the places where you know things go well. That swirl of ingredients that if it comes together in a really bad way, you're going to have a really bad day. Thank and you for doing the hand motion you do <laughs> that nobody for swirl of ingredients <laughs> on an audio-only <laughs> medium. That's what you're trying to understand from, you know, from the perspective of the people who are doing the work when you're doing operational learning. An investigation, most of the questions that are required that we answer around the world are understanding the very specific conditions that happened at the moment the event occurred and directly leading up to that moment. So it's a Venn diagram. There is quite a bit of overlap, but there's a lot more that you can learn on the operational learning side. And in uncovering those pieces, you can understand other ways that similar type events can happen, which is why it's so powerful to do. So if you're picturing the Venn diagram, right, you got a really big circle on the operational learning side, quite a bit of overlap, but the circle from the investigation side can be a little bit smaller because the scoping of what you're trying to learn about is quite small. A moment in time versus... Right. A moment in time and the work. elements that led up to that moment in time, but without the color in between of many other ways that you could get to a very similar moment in time. Um that said, there are folks that do traditional investigations that would heavily argue with that because they've been very good at getting operational learning information in how they're doing investigations. So I don't want to not give credit to the fact that folks around the world do a very good job doing that. All right. So our thought process, right, that was a, a piece of this puzzle is that if you do operational learning, you can actually put a significant amount of what you've learned into whatever format is required regulatory wise. And you might have to get a few more pieces in order to round out the regulatory requirements, but there's another way you can handle it as well. Um, and this is the way that we handled the fact that you're kind of living in these two different worlds, especially in places where you are not in control over how you want to do the investigation. So there's some countries around the world where if you have a serious event, you are going to have, as I mentioned, police come in, they're going to take over the investigation. Or if you have a really, really serious event, you might have legal involved in the discussion and you have everything under attorney-client privilege and the requirements within your own organization become extremely tight as to how you're supposed to handle things. In those circumstances, we actually just separated out the investigation itself entirely from operational learning. So we still did both. But what I mean by separated out is we used historical ways that we would do the traditional investigation, followed all the regulatory requirements to a T in the same ways we historically would have done it. And then we also chose to operationally learn about the same process or task or piece of equipment 
from a variety of different places, locations, teams, and we never talked about the event in any of those discussions. In that way, you can actually learn about the brittleness of the process and the system and not tie it legally at all to the event. And we would call them two different things. So in our world, we would call it like, uh, we want to make process improvement, right? So we want to look at this type of process that we're doing and make sure that it is as robust and as resilient as we thought it was. And we're going to do that in space A. And then we're also going to do our investigation about the event itself in space B and ne'er the tween shall meet. That was a really well put thought and a really weird way to end it, but that's <laughs> fine. And that's why we do this. So if I hear you correctly, what you're saying is um, if the incident that needs to follow this very strict investigation process happened in New York, mm-hmm. in theory, uh, and there was a a plant or a location that had a very similar process, if not, if not the same process in Montana, mm-hmm. and you could do operational learning, you would do it somewhere else that mm-hmm. had a very similar process to say, okay, clearly there's brittleness in the system if something like this event happened. Mm-hmm. This is a trigger for us to go learn a lot more about this and, and make sure it's okay. So we're going to go somewhere where they are not directly tied to this event. It's not top of mind. There's hopefully not a lot of hindsight bias that's kicking in and we can just learn freely. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you have the option of learning in Montana and then also learning, you know, in a facility, if you're global in Italy and also, you know, a facility in China, then do all of that. Because strangely, what we find is if you are working, I mean, probably not strangely, probably obvious to everyone. If you're working with similar process, similar equipment, it doesn't seem to really matter where you are around the world. You have very similar brittleness to your system, but also the more that we learn from our own operations, the more we find that some places have already addressed and solved some of the brittleness that others are seeing. So you can learn internally as to how people are being successful. And we just used facilities as an example, but it's true if you're... Right. If you have a service team, exactly. right. If you're if you're out doing dynamic field work and you have several different teams that do it, yeah, absolutely. Doesn't so, matter. Doesn't yeah. matter. So that was how we might handle the regulatory side of things if we still want to use hop concepts, but we feel like our hands are tied. And so the direct ask, um, if, if you're in a place where you might not be able to convince someone to do things differently, but, but you want to at least request permission, I think the simplest direct ask would be, hey, can I go learn about the health of this process somewhere else and see if it teaches anything? Yeah. And I think there it it creates a really interesting dynamic between where we got to with the investigation and where we got with the let's say operational learning. Yeah, absolutely. And how we'd solve it. And it just is a really good example as to the end now. What? Hey, we learned this stuff, and here's how we'd solve these problems, and here's how we'd solve the operational learning problems. And look at how different they are. And maybe there's some similarities, but look how different they could be. And if we did it traditionally, this is where we'd end up. Yes. It also makes a great case for being able to do proactive operational learning as well, because you start to see that it you can have these conversations independent of an event. And you can see how conditions can come together to cause terrible events. Like you can actually, in every case that I've done this, I could point to three or four at least different ways that you could get the same terrible outcome that had happened 
in the place where we did have an event, learning somewhere else with a completely different group. And so the thought process in my mind there is always, man, I really wish we had proactively been learning in this space. But there's a second big hurdle in this question. Yeah, I love the facial expression you're giving me right now. (laughs) Go on. Yes. So the the first piece that we just talked about is trying to make those two worlds live together, the regulatory and the operational learning. But then the follow-up question in this space is always, but legally, do we want to be shedding light on the fact that we have a problem in our system? Meaning, historically, legally, it felt like maybe our best argument on the legal side was to point to it as a person problem, right? So we had this terrible event because, you know, Bob messed up and Bob knew he messed up and it was against the training that we had and he knew better. And, and he signed this thing and he signed this wouldn't thing, do it. Exactly. And he's been trained X number of times, et cetera, et cetera. And then it feels on the surface as though operational learning opens up this whole liability space of, well, if we don't point to Bob is the issue, well, then our other option is looking at the, the organization, like the, the how, how something was set up and the process design, and then that all falls legally onto the shoulders of the organization. Isn't legal going to have a problem with that? So legal has their ducks in a row pointing at the individual and says, we have a, we could do it this way. This is how we're going to do it. We're going to, the company won't look nearly as bad. Also, ducks in a row. I feel like it's always <laughs> talked about with legal teams for some reason. What they have their ducks in a row, uh, and they're they're ready to to say we can we can get through this. We can yeah. just point at the person and move on. Yeah. And this is this is different than that, right? Well, I, and we thought different was bad for a while. Correct. Well, I I think that the the question that's posed directly is like, how are we going to get legal on board with this? Like mm-hmm. that's generally how people ask and, uh, that you, question. With this is just with the hop. operational learning. Operational now. learning, right. How are we going to get legal on board with this? Doesn't it open us up to liability? Or a mm-hmm. t- leader directly says, we're not going to do this hop stuff because it will open us up to liability. And I think that well, that was also my first impression upon learning it until I talked to our internal lawyers in the organization I came from. And in order to get on the same page, we just asked them to come to the same training that I was like, I was going through training and I was like, can you come and listen to this and figure out whether or not we can use these concepts going forward? And I was pleasantly surprised that our environmental health and safety lawyers were like, this is, yes, we should absolutely be doing this. And what they taught me is that knowing less doesn't make you more liable or sorry, knowing less doesn't make you less liable. Mm -hmm. It makes you more liable because you have no opportunity to get ahead of something. You still have the chance that you can have a very serious event happening. And now if you know less, you're in trouble. Because Strange concept. (laughs) Because you, you can't, you can't just say we didn't know that is not an option. Um, And I thought, at one point that it was just like my legal team that was sort of this progressive thinking group. Wow, and- <laughs> look at us. <laughs> We're so far along. And I found out later on in teaching this for other organizations that that is not true. Actually, in one group, I um, this sounds like a bad setup to a joke, but it's not supposed to be. Which would be a very on-brand. <laughs> in one group, um, I taught a group of 25 HR professionals all in the same room all at the same time. And then the next day, a group of 25 operations leaders came in 
all in the same room, all at the same time. And then the next day, a group of 25 lawyers came in all in the same room, all at the this same time. This is a bad <laughs> joke. <laughs> and if you had asked me before teaching those three groups back to back to back, who I thought would be those that were toughest on this concept and, and most, and this was years ago already, right? So this was not a well-known concept. And I was very concerned about doing this type of training with so many people in the HR and legal space. I would have told you that it would have been a tie between HR and legal and legal would be the one pushing back the most. Mm-hmm. I was absolutely wrong. HR were like, this is exactly how we would like to be operating. And legal said, this is actually how we do operate, meaning we generally are looking at whether or not we have system problems. And we already use the idea of um, having a, a, a reasonable decision-making process, right? Is, is somebody making a logical, reasonable, rational decision-making process, which lines directly up with our idea of like the substitution test within this hop space. So we were speaking the same concepts and they were very much part of trying to separate out person problems from system problems. The group that pushed back the most was the operations leaders. And the reason they pushed back the most is because they said that HR and legal would never buy in. <laughs> so, well, so what that taught me, by the way, is you should never separate out those groups when you're having this conversation, bring folks together. And that clears up some of the, some of the assumptions that we've made about other people's requirements. So if we are stuck in this legal space, the one little ask of what I would hope people might have some, uh, control or at least some influence to do is to request that some folks from the legal team sit in on some hop training so that you can have a real informed discussion with each other without the assumptions as to what legal will or will not accept or what is liability or what isn't liability. So you're speaking from the same page. I remember when I was at work, I'd always feel like I don't want to do this, but I feel constrained because of HR or legal or whatever the precedent is. And it reminds me of the Bob Edwards quote, right? Like we made this thing called work. Yeah. So we have to fix it. We yep. can't just say, well, I want to do it differently, but I can't, I can't. Because, well, yeah. it's, it was made up by other people. <laughs> we can make it up ourselves. So we, I'm, and it's going to, unfortunately, even hearing you say in the, in the OSHA or whatever regulatory space, well, then you do one investigation how you have to, and then you go and do learning operational learning somewhere else. I mean, that's a lot of work. Yeah. And, and, and we, we will be consistent saying we know. Yeah. <laughs> it, is, it is Absolutely a lot. Fair. It's a lot. Yeah. And we get that. But if, yeah. if you, if you see it, sometimes you can't unsee it. And this is one of those situations where we just got to take a step in the direction and, and, and work on it and do the double work, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's why this is a whole group of people who are passionate advocates is because, because it is, it is more work. And you have to be passionate about it in order to want to put in the energy because for most people that are willing to do it, it's because we can't see any other way. We can't go back, yep. right? So we, we got to forge some sort of path forward with the hopes that that path gets easier for other people to, to follow. I think it was an orange day. Hopefully. <laughs> I don't even know what that means still. Uh, but that's it. Uh, any homework? Uh, just same? Same. We'll keep uh, answering questions until people run out of them get tired of us yeah all right sounds good thanks thanks for listening (laughs) have a good one well that's it yep another one in the books (laughs) we did it 
If you uh, want to send us any of your thoughts, actually fling us any of your thoughts, you can do so at the website www.hoppodcast.com. That's H-O-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T.com. It's still such a stupid name. It's such a stupid name. We look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for listening.